Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, let's let's dive right into it. Matthew 5, 8. Um, I think what Jesus is doing here, I've tried to mention this every time, that he's describing um, in the Beatitudes the disposition so far. He's describing the disposition of those whose, whose lives are oriented towards God, a Godward orientation towards life that um, <laughs> several years ago, what makes me think of this, several years ago, uh, we had these pumps that needed constant oil on our boiler system. And uh, since then, we've gone to a water-lubricated pump, which ner- nerdy alert here. You probably don't want to know that. But what that means is that uh, they require a lot less maintenance, so we don't have to change them out as much. But back when we did have to change them out, one of the things you had to do when you put a pump on, and we did it ourselves because we didn't have... We didn't have the resources to go outside, so it was me and Mike Sandstrom changing pumps quite often. You had to make sure that you got the directional flow correct. You don't want the pump pump in the wrong direction. And uh, sometimes I think in life we're like a pump that has the directional flow going the wrong way. And uh, Our lives are supposed to be oriented towards God. Um, and when, when that happens, I'm not going to say that everything falls into place and everything is just easy street, but... Um, you start to live life the way that it was supposed to be lived. Um, Dallas Willard, he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and he described life as as most people are living life flying upside down. And that's really the truth of it. But I think what is described for us in the Beatitudes is disposition of a life that's lived towards God, that the direction of the inner life is Godward. And, of course, do you know that the direction of the inner life is the direction of the outer life? Are you with me? Okay. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, above all things, guard your heart because from it, what? Okay. Flows, flows the issues of life, right? Out of the heart come these things. And so we're intended to guard our hearts. Tonight, it's no mistake that we're, we're talking uh, about the heart. And as we looked at some of the other Beatitudes, I find... The poor in spirit are those who recognize their need for God. That's a that's an inner disposition that we carry with us. We we recognize our need for God. The sinful man, the worldly man, the secular man uh, or woman, they don't recognize their need for God most of the time. We think we're self-sustained and self-sufficient. The other one is that those who mourn are those who are troubled by uh, the st- sinful state, whether their sinful state or the world's sinful state, they're troubled by that. And so uh, God promises a blessing to those who mourn. And, and I think in that particular way, those who are meek are those who refuse uh, to acquire the kingdom with power games. Instead, we, uh, we who are meek, and I, I hope that's all of us here, we're trusting the Lord to bring the kingdom. And we're not trying to go force it with with arms, you know what I mean? Like we're trying to, uh, to take over the world in that way, forced by, uh, or win by forced conversion. And those who are righteous, those who crave righteousness, desire to stand right in right relation with God and to do what pleases him. And those who are recognize, um, those who are 
sorry, hold on just a second. Let me check my notes here. Uh, those who recognize their, they are, that we are undeserving and desire uh, to see true help come. Okay, so the merciful, recognizing those who are undeserving, desiring to see true help come to them uh, through us and, and trying to extend every grace and mercy that we can. So in my understanding, to be pure in heart uh, here is a disposition too. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a direction of a life lived towards God. And so as we, we think about this, um, to have the, to be pure in heart means something in our disposition towards God. Are you, are you with me? That it's, this is where we're connecting with Him, uh, first and primarily. And then, of course, our lives should follow that. So the pure in heart, what does, what does that mean? What does it mean? to be pure in heart. Okay, that's a that's a difficult question. We're not told by Jesus what he meant. In fact, what I'm finding in all of these is he doesn't he doesn't always explain his terms for us. That we have to we have to gather from other scriptures what's said. We can understand the the general tenor of what he says, but I think as we look at how all the scriptures come together, we start to see how they all flow into a similar stream and there's something that's being done here and so I think we need to keep an eye, first of all, when we translate or we interpret Scripture. Uh, one principle that we need to let govern us is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Do you know what I mean by that? That's called the analogy of faith, and it means that we understand the Bible in light of the Bible. And uh, the context, somebody said, you never read just a Scripture. You're always reading in light of all of God's revelation. I think there's particular chronology of that that needs to be done, but but we're we're reading in light of what God has done in all of Scripture. And so the first thing we need to do when we come to any scriptural context, we need to ask the question, what's being said right there? Okay? And and the reason for that is because there's keys and clues within that immediate context that tell us something. And so we want to look there first. And what I notice from this immediate context is that Jesus talking to uh, his disciples, the crowd listening in, um, he's telling them, first of all, and he had, we haven't quite gotten out of this into a kind of a reactionary um, thing or uh, an attitudinal thing that he's going to challenge them with. He's, he's praising a certain disposition towards God. And you know that uh, this uh, these passages I was mentioning, it's kind of difficult that even some of the scholars don't agree on what these things mean. Some of the Bible scholars don't agree on what these exactly mean. And uh, here are some possibilities when we talk about the pure in heart. Let me mention three possibilities for us tonight. And then I'm going to suggest to you one that I think it's referring to. Number one um, is cleanliness, cleanliness of heart. Okay, Cleanliness of heart. Pure in heart means that the heart has been swept clean and that sin is not dominant there. That's a good thing. And uh, that's a possibility here. Another thing that could be meant, and, and these could have some overlap into them, is integrity of heart. What, is, what does that mean when we would talk about integrity of heart? What's that? Consistent? Okay. Integrity. That our heart and our actions match. That it, we're not like the people of Judah during Isaiah's prophecy. The, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, there's some inconsistency between what they do in ritual action and the actual disposition of their heart towards God. That's a problem. Uh, remember 
when David was repenting of his sins, I'm trying to remember exactly how this is said, but I think it's Psalm 51, verse 6. You desire truth in the inner parts. You want, you want truth. You want there to be authenticity. Okay? So that's good. That's a possibility. Then there's a third one. And <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to be real smart to know that's where I'm going. Okay, because that's the that's the rhetorical device is you always go towards that last one. But uh, and I think the third one is where it's at. Now, I want you to I'm going to say this again, but I want to be clear about it. So I'm going to say it up front. I'm not saying that cleanliness of heart is not important. I'm not saying that integrity of heart is not important. I, I think both of those are. I'm asking the question, what do I think Jesus means here? Okay, see the difference? So what do I think he means here? I think he means singleness of heart. Okay? That's a, a kind of purity of focus, a kind of purity of pursuit that instead of having a divided heart, that there's a singularity. Gary was just talking to me a moment ago. I hope it's all right to mention this, about how he's realizing uh, the longer he walks with the, war, the Lord, uh, the beauty of how God stands alone in terms of our affections. That's That's maybe a, a way to say it. Uh, there's beauty in that, that knowing God is the, the chief pursuit in life for all of us. Singleness of heart. So scripture interprets scripture, and as I said, we have to do that carefully. Um, and I think when it comes to understanding the Old Testament, we need to try to understand it first in its context, how they would have understood it. And then, of course, we can't help but bring the meaning that we know from the extension of scripture back into it, but I think the first place we start is what does it say um, to them, and then we're we're trying to understand how that relates to us as New Testament believers. So I don't know that we get much help from this context regarding purity of heart, but I think Jesus, um, as he so often does, quotes from the Old Testament for authority. Let me ask you a provocative question, and you're going to know the answer. Does Jesus need to quote from the Old Testament for authority? Does he? I don't think so. <laughs> I think because he's the son of God, he has the right to speak scripture, don't you? But he does so. Why would you think he would do so? I don't, there's no, I mean, I'm sure there's a right and a wrong answer to this, but I don't, I don't have a, something I'm aiming for here, but maybe we could just think about this together. Why would he quote Old Testament scripture? It's to validate what he's saying. Some people don't believe him. Right? They need to hear it from the scriptures. They don't believe him. He says, <laughs> you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they speak of me. So he quotes the scriptures a lot. Any other thing you can think of why he would do that? That's good. That's true. Some some churches do. They're like, we don't need those 39. We've got these 27. And what's interesting about that is that the early church, they didn't have anything but the Old Testament at first. So they got all of their scriptures from there. And in fact, a lot of the New Testament is quotes from the Old. Like Walter Kaiser, he's an Old Testament scholar. He says, oh, I like the New Testament. It reminds me of the Old. <laughs> so, uh, and, and it's there, of course. We understand the preaching of Jesus is all there. Um, the the spiritual life that we're to live in faith. There's seeds of it there at least. And I think it grows as we understand fuller in the New Testament. But 
Um, so does Jesus need to quote the Old Testament? I don't think so, but he does. Um, anybody know which Old Testament book Jesus quoted most? What is it? Isaiah? Okay, anybody else? Genesis? No. Deuteronomy? No. Psalms. More than any other book in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? And it's the biggest one. Why not? <laughs> Just by sheer proportion. But uh, Deuteronomy's in there. It's probably two or three. Isaiah's in there. It's probably within that two or three. And then, of course, uh, there's a lot of quotes from different places, but those seem to be that seems to be the primary one. So when we're we're trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about with purity of heart and coming to the conclusion uh, of what that might be, um, I think we would want to turn to some of the passages that this refers to. And so I think there are two other passages which shed light on Jesus's statement here: the pure in heart. Let's see if this is going to work. And if it doesn't, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm going to rely upon this tonight. All right. Can you see that? Psalm 24, 3 through 6. Matthew 5, 8 is where we're at. So James 4, 8 is the other one. Anybody know off the top of your head without looking what those are? You can turn there if you want. Anybody know this one? James 4, 8. I'll give you a start. What is it? Are you, you can somebody? I know you guys are cheating, aren't you? You're looking at your phones. <laughs> um, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Weep, wail, and mourn. Turn your laughter into mourning, and your grief, your uh, joy into tears. How about Psalm 24? That's it. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul to an idol or sworn by what's false. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Thank God for that. So we get some clues as to what pure in heart means. And I'd like to take us to some of these uh, scriptures, and we can look at them in some more detail. First, um, you'll notice how there's kind of a triangle here, and I think these kind of connect to each other. And so what we'll do is we'll look at, at this side first of the triangle, the connection between those two. I think it'll show us a little something. Look at Psalm 24 with me. We'll start there. It's the, the oldest of these. Notice, uh, who may ascend to the mountain or the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. What are we, what are we talking about there? What's that? The throne? Okay. Being close to the Lord, okay? We're, we're dealing with, if we're, we're dealing in the material world, we're singing a psalm as we're ascending the steps into a place of worship, which is what? The temple, right? Okay, so as they're talking about the hill of the Lord, they're usually referring to, at least in the um, Israelite cosmology, is going to be the highest point though Hermon geographically is taller, the highest point in all the world spiritually would be the Temple Mount. Okay? Have you ever noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this little thing that's often said uh, about going to Jerusalem, we must go up to Jerusalem. 
right? Everywhere you go, you could be coming from Herman, which is taller altitude-wise. You always go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because there's some kind of a spiritual ascent that is viewed as taking place uh, there as well. So who may ascend into the mount of the Lord, into his presence, who can stand in his holy place? Now, you're talking about a physical posture, but you're more importantly, you're talking about a spiritual posture here. Are you with me? There's a spiritual posture that's taking place. Who can do this? And I want you to see how I've kind of broken this down grammatically for us so that it can, it can stand out. Who can do that? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by what's false. And, and I'll argue that the NIV has that right, talking about a false god. Okay, so you have this, uh, this psalm here. And I believe that that's the first we should look at in chronology here. It's the oldest writings to the newer. And before we read back into it, that understanding, let's understand what's originally there. Ascending to the hill of the Lord means to come into the holy place, coming near to God, entering his presence. Um, how did the, how was the Old Testament believer supposed to come into the temple? Uh, they came, as they came into the temple, they were coming into his presence. And what David here is writing, this is the Psalm of David, is telling them, you can't just come haphazardly into the presence of God. You need to come with the right kind of heart. You need to come with the right kind of posture in terms of your your hands. Okay? So they're ascending to the hill of the Lord. How did... How did the psalmist understand uh, clean hands and a pure heart? I'd like you to notice that there's a couplet that's taking place here. Clean hands and a pure heart, trust in an idol or swear by what's false. This is typical of Hebrew poetry, especially synonymous parallelism, where one, one uh, phrase gives a little more insight into the one prior to it. So you say one phrase, and then you say another, and by coupling those two together, you get a fuller understanding of what they mean. It's not saying two different things usually although there is contrasting parallels, but that's not this. So we shouldn't see four things here. We probably should see two things. You, you understand what I mean? There's two things that are happening here. And uh, the clean hands and pure heart has to do with some kind of cleansing that's taking place, but even more importantly, a singleness of devotion. I think the clean hands flow from the pure heart. Okay, and, and notice that there's a connection even between the pure heart and the next thing, because if we're talking about a singleness of heart, if our heart is singly after God, what does that exclude? Idols. Okay, So it, it mentions what's false there, or trusting in what is worthless. Um, as I said, I think the NIV does us a favor here because... The word that's used there would be something like worthless. And anybody who would read the Old Testament and know it, especially in Hebrew, would understand that that's referring to idolatry. The worthless thing, the vain thing, the empty thing, that's a term for idolatry and idols. So notice uh, clean hands that in the Bible, what do the hands represent? Action, deeds, right? And uh, to not to have clean hands means to be what to or to do what to do good to do the right thing, okay? And to have they we usually probably wouldn't call it dirty hands. They have another phrase for it to have something on your hands. 
blood, blood. To have blood on your hands was to have uh, to be committing sinful actions. You have blood on your hands. You remember, I think Lady Macbeth talked about how all the all the water in the ocean couldn't wash these hands clean. You know, and and uh, we understand that as as believers that we've had to come to the one who can clean our hands because we couldn't do it ourselves. They're stained. Though your sins were scarlet, what? They'll be white as snow. Okay, he washes, he washes us clean. Cain had his brother's blood on his hands in Genesis four. It talks about that. Your brother's blood is on your hands. David rebu- rebuked Rechab, who is said to have had Saul's blood on his hands. The Lord hates hands that what shed innocent blood. Shed innocent blood. Proverbs six. Isaiah 1, 15 and 59, 3, the hands of God's people are full of blood. I don't know that he's talking about literal violence. I think he could be talking about any kind of ordinary sin is, is like having blood on your hands. Ezekiel echoes that in Ezekiel 23, 37. And then you know what Pilate did when he gave consent to the crucifixion of Christ? What did he do? He tried to wash his hands. Something about, I don't want his blood to be on my hands. So you, you get the metaphor? To have dirty hands is to have blood on the hands. To have clean hands is to have had those washed clean. And it, it's more than just a physical act. I, um, Jesus even talks about those who wash their hands, but it's, they're still unclean on the inside. Right? You can wash your hands physically, but that's not the same thing as having your hands washed by God. So that's one of the concerns for standing in the Lord's presence. If we want to have the Lord's presence, which I think this is what this is referring to here, then we have to have clean hands. But more significant for our discussion tonight is the next part is having a pure heart. What does the Bible say about the heart? Well, it tells us the heart is the source of life. We talked about Proverbs 4.23 a little bit ago. From from it, uh, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life in Proverbs 4.23. In Deuteronomy 6.5, do you know the what uh, the Jewish people said every morning, every noon, and every night? They said a certain prayer or creed, the Shema. Do you know what it is? You know what the Shema is? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the command. And then, of course, it goes on from there. It talks about with all your strength. But this is the call, and it was the creedal prayer of Israel to love the Lord with all of your heart. Proverbs 3, 5 says, we're trust in the Lord with all of our heart. So you could see how if our heart gets clouded up, or gets diverted, that there could be a problem. David, who we believe writes this psalm, he charged Solomon to walk before the Lord with all of his heart. In 1 Kings 2, 4, as David's uh, getting ready to lay down and breathe his last, he charges Solomon, if you walk faithfully before the Lord with all of your heart, he's promised that he will always have a descendant upon the throne, right? Does Solomon do that? No, it's not really funny, but what's that? 
For a little while he did, and then he went terribly astray, didn't he? In fact, uh, often, it's interesting as we're talking about David here writing this psalm, one of the comparisons that comes up with all the kings in the Old Testament is this, usually the kings of Judah. I don't know if they said this of the kings of Israel, I can't remember, but I know they said of the kings of Judah that the comparison, and usually it was a failure, they did this great thing, but they did not follow the Lord with all of their heart as David had done. Again and again, it's said over and over again. It's like, this is the standard of kings, and everybody's falling short of that. David, David followed the Lord with all of his heart. And so, uh, and you can see that immediately in Solomon, uh, 1 Kings 11.4, that the kings of Judah were compared with David in that way, and it didn't, even the next generation didn't follow it that way. So wholeheartedness is a major theme in the Old Testament. And I think it's here that we find the meaning to what Jesus means by purity of heart, that, that it's, a, it's a wholehearted devotion to him. It's a wholehearted pursuit after him. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, this word uh, in Psalm 24. And if you look at Matthew 5 and you look at, um, I believe it's the same in James 4, that there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that's really old called the Septuagint. And if you go back and you look, you find it's the same word. There's a lot of words for purity, but it's the same word in Matthew as it is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which precedes Matthew. So what that tells us is that these ideas are connected. Not only is um, uh, clean hands and a pure heart the same, but over here in James, it's similar as well. And so I just wanted us to notice here, this is what I think he's after, is, is a purity of heart. The Hebrew word for pure heart comes from um, a word that delivers a powerful metaphor, and it means to sift out. So to have a pure heart means to have a heart that's sifted out. Okay, Sift out, uh, it can be translated to purge out or to select out. So some kind of way of dividing between two things, one that's good and one that's bad. Now, it could be speaking generally, but I think here this is sifting out the idols that belong or don't belong in the heart, I should say, don't belong. And so it's used for separating the good from the bad, removing the bad while keeping the good. And so it sounds like cleansing, but it could be here that this is talking about cleansing from idols. And if we're following the context, you can see that that's what is in mind as we get down to these next two stanzas here. Uh, clean hands and a pure heart who doesn't trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Okay, so to be, to be sifted out is to remove those other allegiances and to make room only for God. And so that word, I think, is important. Uh, there's a good study here on idols, by the way, if you want to take a look at this. If you notice um, in this context here in verse 4, some translators have uh, what is false. So down where it says, trust in an idol or swear by what is false. Um, there's a really uh, interesting study here. You can look up some of these passages if you like. I'm just going to mention it. We don't have time for it. It's not our main text. It's just a text we're dealing with. But Psalm 119.37 uh, talks about worthless things. Psalm 40, verse 4, I'll repeat these, Psalm 31, 6, and Jonah 2, 8. 
where it talks about they that go after worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Um, and so, uh, let me repeat those real quick. Psalm one nineteen thirty seven, Psalm forty verse four, Psalm thirty one six, and Jonah two eight. So there's a good study here of what God thinks about idols. He calls them vanities. Which what are vanities? We're not talking about something that goes in your bathroom. What is it? Empty, meaningless, yeah. And if it's referring to idols that way, this is a, a way of referring to idols. What is that saying about the idols? They're nothing. They can't fulfill on their promise. They can't talk to you. They can't listen to you. They don't have a promise. I mean, I think there's a demonic promise, but it's never fulfilled, is it? Like any idol that we have promises big things in one way, but fails to deliver in every way. And so they're vanities. Another thing is worthless that is mentioned. Um, lies. This is another really important one, swearing by what's false or false God. It's, li- it's lying in a way about being a God because it's not. It's a lie. And, th- and that's, that's a really rich theme for idols in the Old Testament, that the thing that you're worshiping is a lie. The Bible says that. And so that's, a, to me, a very interesting study. Um, so here, uh, to lift up, it says uh, to trust in an idol. If you have a, a more formal translation, it'll say something like lift up your soul. And that is a word that's used in different places in the Psalms for putting trust in God. Okay, so that's Psalm 25, 1 and 2. 86, 4, 143, 8. Okay. All right, well, let's notice how James deals with this passage. Okay, I'm going to set these side by side. Okay, anybody know the context of this? What happens right before this in James from all your studies of James? Yeah. What causes wars and fights among you? Is it not the desires that are striving within you, you fight and you war and you cannot have, you uh, you strive and you kill, you cannot get, I'm paraphrasing, and you don't have because you don't ask. And you, when you ask, you ask with the wrong kind of motives, consume it on your own lusts, your own desires. What is it? And then he talks about how the Spirit of God jealously longs for you, right? You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enemy, enmity with God? What does anybody know that when a, what uh, when the Bible says adulterous in a metaphorical sense? What we all know what it means literally. What does it mean metaphorically usually? Okay, idol worship that you've gone after another lover. I mean, Ezekiel is very very descriptive on that, isn't he? You've gone after these other lovers, and so you're an adulterous people. That's what James is talking about here, this uh, uh, this idolatry that is like spiritual adultery. Okay, so he says that this can be changed, though. Uh, by the way, James is writing to believers. I don't know if you knew that. He's writing to believers. You'd think this is, he's writing to non-Christians out there. No, he's writing to believers. He said, you believers are worldly, some of them. So what do you need to do? 
draw near to, he talks about resisting, submit to God and, and uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then it says, and the reason why I quote this part is it's significant to our context, come near to God and he will come near to you. Do you see that? I'd like you to notice here the connection between these two. Okay. See that? What's, what's at issue there? It's the presence of God. We want to be in God's presence. We want to walk in close relationship with him. Okay? It's more than just standing in a place. It's about being in God's presence. Uh, interesting thing, um, which we'll read more of in just a moment, is that, do you know what the word for the presence of God is in both Old and New Testament? It's not the same word, but it has the same meaning. In uh, Hebrew, it's penei, P-A-N-E-H, penei. In um, Greek, it's prosopion, and both of them mean the face, the face, to know the face of God. That's to, that's to be in his presence, is to know the face of God. And so this is what's, this is what's at issue here, is getting back into right relationships. Can you see the connection between these two? How do you do this? Well, look, how do you have clean hands? Well, that's not how. It's more like more like this. Can you see that? Wash, and now my uh, marker doesn't want to work. There we go. Okay, so wash, wash leads to clean hands. Would you agree? Purify leads to a purified heart. So he's telling us to do that. Interesting, James doesn't really tell us how that happens, but if you're a Christian, you know. There's a repentance that needs to happen, and we come to Jesus, and we ask him to forgive us, and then we walk in the power of the Spirit to overcome. Right? So that's that's his call. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So I'd like you to notice the connection between these two. They're both dealing with affections and allegiances, and especially in James, the idolatries uh, that are considered adulteries. So it says, purify your hearts. Uh, notice the, the, the thing that follows, wash your hands. He's telling us why they need to wash their hands. Why? Because they're sinners. And in like manner, purify your hearts because what does that suggest? They're living in two minds. So the purity of heart isn't so much having to do with cleanliness, although that, that's part of it. As I said before, I don't want you to take the wrong thing from this. I'm saying that the point of the purity of heart is singleness, okay? And this is even true in our language. When we think of pure, uh, often we think of a cleansing, and, and that's one aspect of it. But the other thing that's pure means 100%, Right? Like when you're talking about orange juice and it's pure, 100% Florida orange juice. Right, John? Pure, 100%. Pure. What's that mean? It's not mixed with that California stuff. Or water. <laughs> it's pure. It's, 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 it's toward one thing. It's one thing. And that's what I think he's calling us to here. And, and I think this is especially drawn out by... Double-minded here, okay? Double-minded, um, the Greek word for that is interesting. It's daisuke, two souls, to be in two souls at the same time. See, we're not, we're not called to do that. We're called to be single, 
in our pursuit of God. And so that's what I think this is after here, is a singleness. So, as I said, the one thing you must not take from this is that I don't think we need to have sin removed from our hearts or integrity from our motives, or that integrity doesn't need to be in our motives. I think we need to have integrity. I think we need to have sin uh, cleansed from our heart. The point that I'm making is that what is Jesus talking about in purity of heart? He's talking about to will and desire one thing. You with me? To will and desire one thing. So when he says the pure in heart will see God, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because look, come near to God. Watch, how do you do it? Right here. Who may ascend and stand in the presence of God? Clean hands and a pure heart. It's to be in God's presence. See here? I wouldn't deny that. I'm, that's, I'm not arguing. That's what I was saying by my last statement is that I think that's included with it. But I think the primary point is a heart towards God without any uh, split allegiance. Okay? And I think if we have a heart towards God like that, then he is going to purify us from our sin, and he's going to give us the singleness of heart. And you can't have a heart like that without being purified by him. You, you understand what I mean? That if our heart is after God like that, and we want to stay close to him, we're, we're going to become more and more like him in terms of our practical righteousness. And we're going to find it hard and harder and harder to live in that kind of sin. So I think the two are connected. But my point is that I think the purity of heart that he's referring to here is a singleness uh, in regard to this. So the connection. We'll look at the other scripture in just a moment. So um, people who are pure in heart can be people who are only interested uh, in serving God, whose lives are directed only to serve him. Um Pure in heart, then, would mean something like undivided devotion. Here's what the different uh, commentaries said, and I'm just going to go through this quick. Uh, that it consists in worshiping only God. To be pure in heart consists in worshiping only God. It's undivided devotion of heart along with inner moral purity. Okay, A moral uprightness as opposed to an outward ritual purity. A lifestyle of pleasing God. A single-minded loyalty to God that arises from inner cleansing, and in a, which is kind of what Sierra was saying there. And it's a single-mindedness without ulterior motives. It's to have a single-minded loyalty to God and to his will. It's, it is to will God's will with all one's being, with consistency between outward behavior and inward thought. There you get a little bit of the integrity uh, mixed in with that. And uh, the purity referred to means singleness of motive, and of devotion as opposed to a divided motive without specific reference to either moral perfection or sexual purity, according to the UBS uh, Bible handbook. All right, let's look at this next one here, if we can, and I think we can. Okay, this is going to be Psalm 24 and Matthew 5.8. I'd like you to notice some of the parallels that are here. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by what's false. Uh, they will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. What I've tried to do is put in parallel here uh, similar colors so that you could see the connection between these two passages a little bit easier. Notice... Um, 
the concern in Psalm 24 is to ascend into the presence of the Lord. Notice the concern of Jesus in this blessing, this beatitude, is to see God. Do you see the connection? Okay, or this is the generation of those who seek you, who seek your face, pane, right? The presence of God. Um, I'm going to suggest to you, and I think we all know this, that what the Old Testament believer and even the New Testament believer experiences in this life is not the fullness of what Jesus is promising here. Are, are you with me on that? Don't take that the wrong way. I'm not downplaying our faith. I'm saying that what is to come, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. We've not conceived of the beauty that we'll see in him. Every, have you ever thought of this? Everything that is beautiful in life has somehow derived from God. And what that means to me is that the source of all beauty is him. And that suggests to me that he's more beautiful than all of it. And beauty may not be your um, something that entices you or draws you, but I think that there's something here that uh, we will discover. Uh, it's like when we see a, a scenery for the first time and there's majesty in it. That's not even comparable to what we'll see when we, we see God. Okay. So notice that there are some similarities, some connections here. Notice they will receive a blessing from the Lord. Jesus pronounces blessing upon the pure in heart. It's a connection okay, between Psalm 24 and Matthew 5, 8. And so when it says that we will see God, he promises we will see God. Let me, let me close out the last point. The last point is that I believe the pure in heart means those who have a singleness of heart towards God. Okay, That's what I believe is there. We can argue the other stuff. We could talk about it. And it's probably there, but I think the primary picture is of a singleness of heart. Now, um, going on to this next one, we'll see God. I think there's an aspect of this which is true now. That if you're pure in heart now, there's an aspect of seeing God that you will have now. Okay? You, you understand that those who have a singleness of devotion, you're going to recognize God in 10,000 places. You're going to see something of who he is. You're going to see something of his majesty and beauty. You're going you're gonna to see the image of God in other people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we're, we're going to see a, his beauty and his creation. I mean, think about those who think this all happened by random chance, how much majesty they're robbed of because they don't see it as the intentional creation of our beautiful God. Uh, but we we see that, and there's a sense in which we see uh, thousands and thousands of other things in our life where God's fingerprints are on one thing or another. We see the beauty of Christ in, uh, in great sacrifices, and, and every little sacrifice ought to point our eyes towards the greatest sacrifice of all. And so we see beauty in all of that, and we see God at work in lives, and we can we can sense when he's working. Because our lives are oriented towards him, which is what Jesus is talking about here. For those whose lives are oriented towards him, they will see God. But, but I'm not sure that seeing him in that way is exactly what he meant here. I think he means it like Job meant it. When he says, though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I will see God. With mine own eyes 
I will see him. Job 19, verse uh, 25 through 27. And, that, and he says, in the end, I will stand on the earth and I'll see him. Okay. So there's a, a future aspect. And it amazes me that in Old Testament Job circumstance, so think about this for a moment. The Sadducees came out of the Old Testament with no hope of resurrection. How could they do that? I think I know because they didn't really put much stock in the writings of the Old Testament. They only put stock in the first five books. But they came out of that not believing in much of the supernatural. And so how could they feel or think that particular way? But you have Job way back then, way back before Jesus is coming, looking and knowing that he will see the Redeemer. And he's got some kind of concept of a bodily resurrection. I don't, I don't understand all of that, but maybe God had given him special, excuse me, special insight into that. So, what do we mean by this? You see, to see God is a gift which is impossible for humans to experience in this life, not in not in the way that I think Jesus means it here. We can't experience that because, and there's a conflict an apparent conflict in Scripture. And I want to be sure to underline apparent. Are you with me? Because it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And then John says, no one has seen him at any time. How do you reconcile that? Well, not according to John. Yeah, I think I think the only answer to that is that two different things are meant by seeing him and not seeing him. You know what I mean? That we can say things like that. I can't think of an example because I wasn't prepared to go down this road exactly, but I think that there are, there are times when we mean two different... Well, take the word love for example. When you use the word love, you don't use it in a single way. You use it... Oh, I love that. That flower arrangement is so beautiful. I love that. Well, you're not going to lay down your life for it. But when you say, I love my kids, you'd lay down your life for them. That's the same word, but it has a couple different meanings to it. And I think that there's something like this going on here. They see him in one sense, but not in the, the final glorified sense, that we shall see him with our glorified bodies. Like you can see... You can see, uh, even in Christ, there's something that his majesty was veiled a little in flesh. Uh, we're not, we've not seen him in the same way that as we, we will look upon the Father, we will look upon Christ in his glorified humanity. And I think the guys on the Transfiguration Mountain got some kind of glimpse of it. And Moses got a little bit of glimpse on it when God hid him in the cleft of the rock and went by and the Bible describes his afterglow. But that's what he saw. Yeah, in the burning bush, and but that's different from looking upon him on his throne. No flesh can see him and live. So there's something that awaits us. I'm not trying to downplay our experience. I'm trying to elevate what yet awaits. That's what I think is glorious, and that we, when we see him as he is, 
things are going to make sense and priorities are going to fall into place and we're going to have some regrets, I think, that we, we didn't live in light of that our whole lives. And if we cry about it, he'll wipe those tears from our eyes too, right? But the thing I'm trying to get us to see is the wonder of it. There's a sense of longing in us for that, and I don't think we always recognize it. You know what I mean by longing? Like that desire for something you can't quite point out what it is. I I get this sometimes when I listen to old songs that take me back. There's a longing. I want to go back there and experience that. But C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Weight of Glory. If you go back there, he he criticized Wordsworth. He thought if I could just go back, Wordsworth thought if he could just go back to that moment that the wonder would be there. But he says it's not in there. It didn't. It's not in that moment. It just came through that moment. That wonder, that longing is a longing in our heart for heaven. It's the eternity in our heart that is described in Ecclesiastes. And the pure in heart, we get to arrive at the goal of our longing. You know, the Christian life, we're excited about heaven. But you know what? Streets of gold, that's all secondary to seeing him. Come on, right? Seeing grandpa? I mean, well, we all want to see grandpa. But we're not going to push... Jesus aside to go see grandpa. Are you with me? That's who we're going to see. And then like grandpa gets, we get to see him a little bit later, but that's, that's who we want to see. And so when it says we will see God, I think it's pointing to a future reality that still is ahead of us. Well, I've got to go on, but this is what I think is promised in Psalm 24. And even in James 4, when it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, there's like the Old Testament disposition of that promise. I should say dispensation, although I want to be careful there because I'm not dispensationalist per se. But uh, there's the Old Testament view of that where they enter the mountain of the Lord and experience his presence in a certain way. There's a New Testament sense of that. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's, There's a closer walk with God because the Holy Spirit lives within us. But there's even a greater reality than that that awaits us. When we get to see him face to face and stand with him. Well, the blessing. Notice the blessing here. They will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. It's a similar thing that's being said here. In Psalm 24, vindication, I think this is appropriate to... Matthew 5, you know that Jesus was thoroughly marinated, there's a better word for that, in the Old Testament scriptures. What is it? Steeped. Yeah, that's that's a better word, Dean. I'm going to send my notes to you. You can pick out all the words and (laughs) put in a better synonym. Yeah, he was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and these things exuded from him. And he not only knew how to quote them like the Pharisees, he knew how to apply them and he he knew the spirit of that rule or that statement and so that he could communicate that in the way that it was always intended. Yeah, he did. He did. Well... Uh, so part of this is vindication. What does vindication mean again? 
Say say that again. I think Vincent, what do you have? To be made right. Okay. Did, what did you say about? Paid back. Okay. Yeah. Vindication is a, a statement of you are in the right to follow me. There's a sense in which you get recognized for that, and I think it's a much it's a rich word. So God will will say to us, and I think more more significantly or more specifically, I should say, uh, Christ says to us, "Well done." This is after the world has criticized those who've made God their sole pursuit. Think of this: that people drive past here every Sunday. I'm sure of it. Don't think about this on Sunday. Think about it just tonight as we're getting ready to close. People drive past here on Sunday, and they think those people are crazy for doing what they're doing. Why waste a perfectly good Sunday doing anything religious? But you and I know, and and the time that we put in, and it, it's not about just coming to church. It's about serving Him, and we've made some have made sacrifices and. Some have followed a life path, and, and we know there's rewards both sides of heaven for that. But there's going to come a day when the things that we've done for him and the way that we've trusted in him and the orientation of our life towards him, God is going to say, you did it right. And those who criticized you were wrong. Think of Job's life. <laughs> we've been coming back to Job somehow. Remember how the friends came, and at first they were quiet, which was good. And then they start to criticize. And then they start to give their theology. And at the end of the book, I think it's chapter 42, verse 7, or chapter 43, verse 7, God speaks up and he says, the things you've said concerning me are not right. Go and tell Job you're sorry and offer some sacrifices. and Maybe I'll forgive you guys. It was something like that. Read it for yourself. But it's uh, interesting because that's a, an example of vindication. For God to say, you've done what's right. Come and receive your reward. The blessing then is status of God's favor extended to his loyal servants. And the greatest blessing of all is the blessing that the pure in heart will see God. And so let's make him our first love and our primary allegiance. And here's the humility of the God we serve is that we can only do that with his help. Think of a God who says, I want you. And I know you can't love me the way you need to. So I'm going to send my spirit to live within you and help you to do it. That's humility. That's the great God descending down into our difficulty and helping us out. Thank God for that. Amen. Thanks for your gracious attention tonight. Let's, uh, let's stand. All right. Father, we pray that you help us to have a singleness of heart and devotion towards you. We want to love you more. We want to recognize idols as they try to creep in and to expel them. Help us to live with clean hands. If there's anything we're doing or have done that has um, been unconfessed or unrepented, Lord, we do that now. And we know that by your grace and trust in you that you've got us covered. So we just thank you, Lord, that we can come to you again. If we have knowing sin, repent of that, turn to you. And, Lord, where we've not noticed it, uh, we know you've covered us. And if it needs to be brought up to be dealt with in terms of character, would you do that? And we just trust you with that, with our forgiveness. And, 
Lord, most of all, we just want to look to you. We don't want to let anything come in and wedge out our love for you, even the good things. As you said to the church at Ephesus that uh, you've forsaken your first love or the love that you had at first and somehow the busyness of doing the work of God replaced actual love for God. We don't want that to happen. We want to have a single-hearted devotion. We want to will one thing. That's to know you and love you. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. And the promise is we shall see God. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.